After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Welcome to another episode of the David and Goliath podcast. Here with my esteemed partner, Stan Guype. Stan's kind of a, I guess, a special or I'm going to call it a special episode, almost like a sad, but uh, I guess we're going to transition into how we're going to deal with tort reform here in Florida. We have a bill that's going to be sitting probably on DeSantis's desk by as early as this Thursday. Let's go through the new bill and what is being proposed and how plaintiff lawyers can attack this. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like when we were young and you had you had board games and you'd played them a lot. It's like suddenly the rules are getting ready to change when we're in the middle of a game, right? And and yeah. it's not like every rule has changed, but just some of them. And, and But some of them are pretty important. So, But just before the podcast, we were talking about because of the changes, we have literally had to jump on and file every viable suit in our office to sort of try to beat the enactment of this upcoming legislation. And one of the things that it really is going to impact with respect to our practice has to do with the admission of medical bills, okay? And and that's really kind of a simple concept. Just about everybody knows medical bills are a huge part of any claim, okay? Medical bills, hey, when you get hit, you go to the doctor, you've got bills, they need to be paid. Used to be we could just introduce what the bill was, right? And here's what the doctor charged, here's what I owe. That's going to change now. Okay, now they're going to be allowed to introduce different factors to consider when it goes to the value of a doctor's service. I think we can get into a little bit of that more in depth because the the way you get care in a personal injury setting is a little different than, let's say, your normal. I just got injured. I need to do something and it's my own fault. Well, let's discuss that. So in your normal universe of I just got injured and it's my, you know, it's my own fault or you have any type of medical issue, you're treating through your health insurance, if you have such. In personal injury, it's a little bit different. And why don't we take us through, you know, how do you normally treat as a car accident victim or a personal injury victim in the state of Florida? What was it like before and what's it going to be like now? Some people have the ability to treat under their health insurance. Some people do not. And it's really kind of a unique time when you get hit if you're involved in a significant accident. Because one thing that happens, if you get really injured, you're typically not going to work. Okay, so you can't work, you lose your paycheck. Then you go to treat under your health insurance and you got a $5,000 deductible. And with respect to deductibles and co-pays, there are statutory requirements that the doctors collect these. They're not allowed to just write off the co-pay. And in fact, when it's a deductible, they're not getting any money from the insurance company. It's all got to come from the patient. So if you're a patient who's got health insurance and you go in and you need something, doctor says, hey, first three to 5000 is on you, and you've got a family to feed and bills to pay, and you're out of work, you're in a tough spot, right? So a lot of times when we're sending people to doctors or they're getting treatment from doctors for auto accident claims, they treat under what's known as a letter of protection. Doctor says, look, I know you can't afford to come out of pocket and pay for this stuff right now. But if you make sure that when this claim settles, the attorney doesn't disperse all the money till they talk to me about the bill, I'll go ahead and provide you treatment along the way. It's what's known as a letter of protection. Yep. Obviously, it's a little less 
sound and secure for the doctor than getting paid automatically from an insurance company within 30 days of treatment. That's two different things. Two totally different universe. I mean, if you're billing health insurance or you're billing Medicare, you can expect to get paid in 30 or 90 days. That's your revenue cycle. That's what you can depend on to pay your employees, pay yourself. Doctors who treat under a letter of protection, the case could last for two, three years. Case could go south. Maybe the lawyer is not very good. Maybe the case is not very good. And also, you to take the chance of a jury verdict going the wrong way. Client could die. There's many reasons why cases go south and you might never get paid. Therefore, shouldn't you be able to set the price at fair market value? Well, that's what it is. That is what happens. Now, fair market value is where the price gets set. But if you're a consumer who's never been in this industry, you might say, all right, well, they can charge 10% more for their services in this setting. And really, that's not the way it is. When you're treating under a letter of protection, there is, okay, the time factor of payment. Okay? It's a completely different practice, meaning, and you, you alluded to this a little bit in your first comment. If I'm a doctor and I, let's say, see 100 patients today, I can, with some reliability, if I'm treating under health insurance, go, okay, 90 days from now, I'm going to see the revenue from treating these 100 patients. And I can plan for that cash to come in. You know, it's sort of your income projection. With personal injury, you can't do that. You can't say, I've got a nice, reliable cash flow. I know when these monies are coming in. Now, yeah. mm -hmm. when it settles, okay, they typically get paid more than they would in that automatic quick payment window. Well, they should be able to. They're offsetting their risk. Exactly. But there's a ton of different risks that go into it. One, doctors got to lay out the money. Doctors got to cover the overhead. Sometimes these cases go south and the doctor gets zero. Okay, sometimes doctors are waiting three and four years for payment. But we don't have another option for these clients. You know, when there's no health insurance that they can use, okay, because they can't afford their co-pays and deductibles, they have to go to a doctor that accepts letters of protection. Yeah, in the universe of physicians out there, there's only a certain finite group of doctors, a very small percentage that treat personal injury victims. Right. And it used to be, well, it still is until this law changes, that what got considered were the factors and costs associated with that doctor's provision of services. You could get to the things that go into what would make that doctor's fee reasonable, okay? And that's all these factors we just talked about. Now what's going on is the law is going to change, and now they can introduce, well, instead of let's talk about what happened in this scenario, okay? Instead of talking about the care and the likelihood of payment for this particular client, the defense can now introduce Medicare rates, 120% of Medicare, these sort of things, in an attempt to suggest that those rates are reasonable for treatment in a personal injury scenario. Which is absolutely absurd. What, what doctor is going to want to wait two to three years to get paid Medicare rates? No one. Right, but it sounds reasonable. until If you don't practice in this arena, okay, if someone was to say, hey, doctors who treat auto accident patients should only get 120% of Medicare. Well, you're going to go, that, that sounds reasonable. You know, if they treat for Medicare in another setting, why not 120% of Medicare in this setting? We just went over all the reasons that this isn't reasonable. But the bigger problem is, okay, as an injured party, you're typically not a value shopper, okay? You're typically going to get care. If you need surgery on your back, 
You're not going in there going, I'm going down the road to find someone cheaper. You've got about five options for people who will see you under a letter of protection. All of them are higher than health insurance rates, and you need a surgery. Correct. What Medicare would have paid for this surgery is an option someone else had, not you. You couldn't take advantage of Medicare. So why does Medicare rates for payment within 30 days of service have anything to do with the reasonable rate of the service you received? It doesn't. It's a thinly veiled attempt by the Republicans and its tort reformers, which is one and pretty much the same, to take a shot at uh, the personal injury attorneys. Another, another one of the liberal bastions in Florida, you know, first was the teachers and the woke agenda, now it's the trial lawyers, and the biggest benefactors of the Democratic Party are what is being attacked over and over again. This is, I'm not trying to get into a political issue, but this is an affront to the citizens in the state of Florida. I mean, this bill on its face, the pretext of the bill was to get rid of nuclear verdicts. Did this bill actually do do any of that? Is it, is it accomplished the, the task of uh, limiting the amount of nuclear verdicts? I don't think this even applies to the type of cases. And, and when, if we just, a nuclear verdict, I would assume is a case with a verdict over $5 million for purposes when of- When I say nuclear verdict, okay, I think you got to look at two separate things, okay? Nuclear verdict, I think, is the verdict that seems out of proportion to the injury suffered, right? Uh, if you were to say $5 million, I wouldn't call that a nuclear verdict if someone was a quadriplegic. I would say that probably doesn't even cover the cost of care, right? So Agreed. But for the purpose of the statute, they define as a nuclear verdict or verdicts over $5 million. They said we led the nation nuclear verdicts over the past five years. This is this kind of almost like pisses me off a little. Because if it's I, not, if it's grossly disproportionate to reality, what most people don't realize after the verdict is stated, you know, let's take an $18 million verdict, there'll be a motion for remitter filed by defense. And then the judge has to make it more, you know, has to make a determination. Is the verdict outlandish with all facts considered? Is it grossly disproportionate to the facts that were given? And then oftentimes they'll correct the verdict. But that's, that's not even the case here. But here's the thing, Matt. Okay. You and I are personal injury attorneys, right? We're the ones that, hey, I guess are the bad guys out there filing these suits. We're the ones making these claims, okay? I can assure you, there has never, ever, ever been a nuclear verdict rendered by a jury made up of six personal injury attorneys. Never. We don't make it to the jury. We get stricken. We're not going to ever, ever be the ones making the decision. The people making the decision are normal people with driver's license. Like, look around the street. It's six people. It's not us making the decision. It is the normal constituents that are sitting out there. And I can promise you, there is not a single person who looks out on a verdict and says, this was a bad verdict or a nuclear verdict, right? Not a single person saying that knows more about the case than the people who rendered the verdict. Those people sat there for a week and listened to everything, okay? These aren't people that showed up at the courthouse saying, I'm ready to render a nuclear verdict. I want to tag somebody, okay? These are people that sat down, listened to the facts, just six normal people, and decided this is what the claim is worth. Why do we want to limit that? Why would you, I mean, what is it about that process that's unfair? There isn't anything. Those are generally in line with reality. And it's when, it's, when a defendant is grossly negligent, the injuries are egregious. This statute doesn't touch those type of cases, though. And, I, and I'll tell you, it does not because, well, let's get into to that in a second. But I will tell you, OK, as an attorney, mm-hmm. never once have I snuck some bullshit past the jury. Every time you try to push something past the jury that's not legit, their BS sensor goes off. They realize it, OK? That's the number one thing we try to avoid as a trial attorney. We don't want to set off their BS sensor. Jurors know when people are full of crap. 
That's not the person that gets the nuclear verdict. The person who gets a nuclear verdict is somebody who had something really, really, really bad happen to them. And the facts support it. Like, like if you're to ask your, I mean, Matt, I'm going to tell you right now, how much money do I have to give you to be a paraplegic? There's no amount of money in the world. $50 million. I got it for you right now. You trade, you, you're going to go paraplegic? No, okay. So if someone awarded you $50 million after you became a paraplegic, I don't think you've even been made whole. It's horrible. I mean, there's no amount of money that can make you whole for these things. So to say, hey, here's a nuclear verdict, you wouldn't trade places with that person. There's no one sitting here saying, uh, you know, you don't want to be receive a, receive a nuclear verdict. That means something really, really, really bad has happened to you or your family. Correct. Never once have I had someone get a seven-figure check and go, yeah, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, they're usually happy that it's over. They're usually happy that some of their financial suffering has gone away. But they're usually not in a situation going, if almost always, if they could turn back time, get rid of the injury and give back the money, they would. Yes. So now, you know, I feel like the, the legislature has taken sort of extreme anecdotal situations and tried to fix this. The situation with the sledgehammer. A situation I don't think need to be fixed. I mean, no. they're sitting here talking about the tort tax that's passed on to the normal Florida consumer as a result of these nuclear verdicts, which are so few and far between compared to your normal average personal injury case. And I think it's just a cost of doing business. At least that's what I would argue it. But for Floridians, I think we absorb a greater cost than the amount of uninsured drivers out there. I mean, this state, you're only required to carry bodily injury coverage in the amount of $100,000 in a lease vehicle. You own a vehicle, you don't have to carry BI. You have comp and collision, that's it. It's ridiculous. How okay. many individuals out there are just woefully underinsured? I mean, we deal with this all day long in our practice. They act like, they act like Florida is just this uh, rogue state and the personal injury lawyers have run amok. When, yeah, is it, the jury system is, is decent. Um, we have some pretty good, we have a pretty good jury pool on the East Coast, especially in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. Those are pretty liberal. But for the most part, you're not seeing huge verdicts around the state. No. I don't think it's out of line of, or disproportionate to what you're seeing in the other 49 states. So, and, and we have, we deal with a system where most individuals have very minimal insurance. They have a 10, 20, $25,000 coverage. We often smile when we get $50,000 and above in a policy because it's not every, those aren't common. Yeah. If you want to fix the system, okay, you fix the system by requiring everyone to carry insurance. Correct. I mean, that's how the system would be fixed. And, I can't tell you how many people walk into my office and are shocked to find out that you're not required to carry even $1 of bodily injury liability insurance in Florida. There's a financial responsibility law that says you're supposed to have it, but nothing that requires you to get it. Unless you have a lease vehicle. And well, and even then, people manage to get around it. Sure. Yeah, but there's, you can get your license. They drive. There's no bodily injury coverage. So meaning if someone hits you, they're going to have $10,000 to fix your car but nothing to fix you. How absurd is that? Awful. I mean, just think of that. We have sat down there and made a decision that by the law, we won't let you get behind the wheel of that car unless you can pay to fix the paint on that other vehicle. But if you run over someone and kill them, we, you really don't have to have anything for that. How absurd is that? You put your kid in a car. How many times are you sitting there going, you're worried about the car? You're worried about the kid. Of course. Okay, when you put someone in a car, you're never worried that the car's going to get damaged. You're never sitting there going, God, I'm worried my car's getting... You're worried that someone's going to get hurt. Yet we don't make you protect against that. We don't make you pay people for their wage loss. You don't make... We just make you have coverage so you can fix their car. That's absurd. And who do you think absorbs those costs? We all do. 
It, we all do. The yeah, wouldn't you think that's do. probably a greater uh, exposure than the supposed tort tax? I mean, you can make numbers look any way you want. That whole stat, the legislation, the pretext of legislation is a pure bullshit. Well, you know what happens here, okay? Matt. Yeah. And you know this as well as I do. Who pays for care when a person truly can't find care? And the answer to the riddle, Stan? It's us because they show up at the ER. If they can't find a doctor that's going to provide this treatment, they're going to end up at the emergency room. Okay. And the emergency room can't turn anyone away, they got to take people. So instead of being able to get treatment at an ortho, being able to do this under a letter of protection, they're showing up at the ER. This is going to be a disaster for people who have acute pain, can't find orthos to treat them, no letters of protection. They end up in the ER racking up multi-thousand dollar bills over and over and over. These bills don't get paid. And then they roll down to us as a social service tax, essentially. And you see it all the time currently. Like a lot of homeless, that is their primary care physician. If they got the flu, they're in the ER. And it costs us $1,000 to get them a flu vet, uh, you know, a flu shot. It's crazy the way this plays out. Awful. Let's go over a couple other highlights of the bill. Yeah. I mean, Sorry, the, I, that, that was my pet peeve there. No, the we're on the same page. Up. Because it's one of those things that I don't think is obvious to the consumer until they look a little deeper. The other things we've got here that I think are, are harmful to Floridians as a whole are some of the limitations when you sue your insurance company, right? This one pisses me off even more than some of the others, all right? Because when you're an insurance company owes you some benefits, okay? Let's just go with $1,000, right? They shorted you. You got something happened. They owe you $1,000 for some damage to your home. Something happened. They owe you 1000 bucks. They tell you, I'm not going to pay you. Used to be we could sue our insurance company, and there was a one-way attorney's fee, meaning, hey, if you won, even though it's $1,000, the insurance company had to pay your attorney an hourly fee to go get that. So, okay, it would make it worthwhile for you to go get your $1,000 because you'd get your 1000 insurance company had to pay the attorney because they're wrong. Well, they're changing that now. They want to change that so that everyone bears their own attorney's fees. So how can a consumer ever afford to sue an insurance company over denial of a minor claim? You can't. PIP suits are gone. PIP, yeah. When the doctors don't get paid, it's going to be impossible to sue over minor claims. And, and I guess in theory, okay, you say, well, why should you sue over a $10 claim? It's only $10, right? But when an insurance company, you got to understand this, when an insurance company is looking at something, they're not looking at $10. They're looking at $10 on a million claims. Of course. So for them, well, we're not going to screw everyone out of $10 because they can all sue us, right? We're going to pay more in fees than we are. In, so we got to do the right thing. Now, we're going to screw everyone out of $10 because we make $10 million and there's nothing they can do about it. That was the same argument I gave every single time in a Pinellas County small claims court when it first started out as a lawyer and was doing PIP suits. Yeah. Okay. Defense lawyer would inevitably uh, complain about the fact that it was there over a $6 reduction. It's like, this is not the only $6 reduction. Insurance companies don't make mistakes or do things by happenstance. This is calculated by an actuary, and they're doing it across millions of claims and making millions of dollars as a result. And here's another thing that I, that I really, we're getting into some other stuff. There's some changes that are happening on the statute to security requirements. Negligent security. The standard right now, your landlord or property owner has to keep the place in a reasonably safe condition based on the circumstances, right? Totality of the circumstances. We're all adults. We're, you know, you, you don't check your common sense at the door, right? 
There are a number of different apartment complexes, a number of different restaurants, a number of different nightclubs, right? Premises. Are they all the same? If you go to a apartment complex in a neighborhood where the average household income in a three-mile radius is $200,000 or more, it's going to be nice. It's going to be safe. It's going to be different, right? If you go into an apartment complex in a known high-crime area, typically low-income areas, it's going to be a lot less safe. And the dangers in each of these instances are different, okay? And I believe, as a reasonable property owner, the steps you need to take to protect your your tenants in each of these situations is different. Now, the legislature is prescribing a one-size-fits-all. If you check these boxes, you're safe on the negligent security. You don't need to do anything else, be it the $2 million condo or the downtrodden condo in the in a lower income area. And I, I disagree. I think the steps you need to take are directly commensurate with the safety of the area your your apartment or your complex is in. I don't think yeah. it's a one size fit all thing. Yeah, the overall risk in a in a very downtrodden area is much different than in an affluent area, of course. Just common sense. There are more guns, okay? There are more criminals. There are more opportunities for crime and the steps you need to take to avoid crime are different. We can tell that just by doing crime grid analysis. That's one of the first things we do on negligent security claims. Look and see, hey, how much crime is in this area to get an idea of what kind of steps a property owner should take. Now that almost doesn't matter. Yeah, just to, for those out there listening who might not understand a crime grid, you know, we're, when someone retains us on a premises liability case, the first thing we're doing is pulling the 911 call sheets. How often has law enforcement or emergency responders respond to that area? And what were the calls about? And that generally, that falls in the doctrine of foreseeability. Was it, uh, was it foreseeable that there's a known risk in this area and that they had to safeguard against it? Now we're no longer considering that. It is a Governor DeSantis Republican-oriented movement. And, I, and I'm not necessarily anti-Republican or, or no, hardcore Democrat. No, I'm anti-moron, including the moron out of Lakewood Ranch. What was the guy who brought up the bill originally? I can't remember his name again, but uh, we'll call him Mr. Shithead. He brought up, a, you know, this bill does nothing to accomplish what they set out to, which is they've told the general public these are predatory billboard lawyers and Florida has run amok with uh, nuclear verdicts. This has done nothing to stop that at all. All it does is create a, just a greater opportunity for profit for insurance companies who do not need that. And, and by the way, you know, one more pretext of this bill was what's going on with uh, the property insurance companies, which is completely different. Auto and casualty insurance carriers are making record profits. Property did need, and there was a reason why they had a special session back in November, early December, to nail the first party property lawyers because of all the, uh, the roofing claims. And that was a system that was, uh, that had, and I hate to keep using the same term, run amok, that was just out of control. It was bullshit. How did that, why did that carry over to this? Is this just DeSantis's grand plan to grandstand before the 2024 election? Yep. That's, that's it, because the public as a whole doesn't understand the nuances and differences. And I can tell you, the roofing stuff was, is really what killed it for us, okay? That was offensive. Mm -hmm. I had people come try to get me to get a free roof. And I'm like, no, no, I, I don't I don't want a free roof. It's it's not right, you know. But there were people out there going, hey, look, here's one shingle that blew off. I can find a way, I can do this, and and suddenly take what should not have been a claim and turn it into a hundred thousand dollar expense for an insurance company. And you know what? They're the ones that killed the goose that laid the golden egg. They're the ones that brought all this down on us, you know. They were hogs. These pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered, and they were hogs. 
And they, they weren't shy about it either. Let's talk about the, the 51% standards, Dan. Okay. This one's another one that kind of pisses me off. Yeah, right? it could have been a lot worse. Um, used to be, yeah, well, it, it used to be a state where, okay, no matter who was at fault, they had to pay you for what they owed you for their percentage of fault. Yep. Now we've switched or switched or are switching to a greater fault bar state, which means, hey, if I've got more than 51% at fault for causing my own injury, I can't sue somebody. Once again, sounds like it might be a reasonable thing. But in reality, when it plays out in real life, uh, this can be really sort of an onerous and difficult standard to operate under. Uh, let me give you an example right here. Let's say I'm driving my motorcycle without a helmet, like I might, like you're allowed to in the state of Florida, and I'm going through a green light, driving down the road. Someone runs a red light and hits me, causing a significant brain injury. Okay? Well, you would think that person should pay me for my brain injury. I mean, that, that would be my you know common sense thought. Well, it used to be that way. Now what happens is, you're going to see an argument from a defense attorney to go, well, that motorcyclist was at least 51% at fault for his brain injury because he wasn't wearing a helmet, right? Now, before, they could argue that, but hey, you know, even if it was 51%, defense would have to pay for the 49%, which he did cause. Now, if they can get 51% on the plaintiff, it's a zero verdict. The plaintiff gets nothing. All right. Yep. Well, this is a jury verdict question. I mean, how are you ever going to know whether a jury is going to put 51% of the blame on the guy for not wearing his helmet? You can't till you get there. And the insurance company is going to leverage that against you, make it impossible to settle these claims, and it gives them an unfair advantage in certain scenarios. Not in every scenario, but in certain scenarios, it gives them an unfair advantage and almost encourages them to make arguments which they otherwise would not make. And they're going to try to get out for discount prices. It's, well, that's it. They leverage the catastrophic possibility to get a discount price because no matter what, I can never tell a client that I can get rid of the possibility that they get a zero. Like in that scenario, you know, without this 5149, you know, I could go in there and tell, look, you know, when we go to trial, I can't tell you what you're going to get, but you're going to get something. Okay. They hit you. It wasn't your fault. You got an injury. We're going to get you something. Now I can't tell them that. Yeah. Yeah, you might you might get something from the jury, but it's offset by the proportional liability. And if you're greater than fifty percent, you're out. It's a complete bar. Yeah, you might get nothing. They could the jury could say you've got fifty million dollars worth of damages, right? Because you're a quadriplegic, but this was fifty five percent your fault, so you get nothing. Awful. Ah, uh, it's you know it it's it's for people who don't really practice in this area. You can't really see all the different ways it's, this kind of stuff is going to be exploited by an insurance company because you don't see the way they already exploit the laws that sit there. It is a game of brinksmanship. It's a game of fear. It's a game of let's put as much leverage as we can against your client and show them as much risk as possible so that they don't challenge us, they don't take us to the mat, and they don't try to get our money. And we've just put a few more tools in the insurance company's playbook We've given them a few more arrows to throw at us to try to keep that from happening. I'm sure we'll figure out a way to work within the framework once it's enacted, but I think probably for the next 12 months or so, 
uh, we're all going to be in a little bit of a holding pattern as we push these claims forward and watch how the insurance companies react under the new Correct. framework. It's going to take a little while to dust to clear. We'll figure out a way. It's just, it's yep. the problem with tort reform is when these rights go, they don't come back. No, the problem with tort reform, I'm going to tell you right now, is it's always done by people who aren't in the industry. None of these people writing the laws or voting on them truly understand what's going on out here. They get anecdotal stuff. They get stories from people who are donating money to them. And if you watch, these bills will will change slightly based on who's made big donations. Hey, someone who's a big donor is going to get hit by this little provision. We need to tweak that. It's BS, okay? It's not done for the be- you know the betterment of society. It's not done for the betterment of the constituents. It's done for the betterment of special interests, big donors and people who are giving big money to the governor and, and other lackeys in, in Florida Congress. It's That being said, we're going to be stuck with it. That we are. I mean, we, the final iteration still isn't known. It's in the, uh, is it the Senate Finance Committee now? Right now, I think it's through the Senate Finance Committee. It's been put on a calendar for a second reading, um, which is supposed to be sometime tomorrow. My understanding is that's kind of like the last official hoop they have to jump through before it passes mm-hmm. the House and Senate officially. At that point, it could be on the governor's desk for signature at any yep. time. And we expect, anticipate this within the next week, it'll be, in, it'll be the law in Florida. Yep. And that's why we file a lawsuit in every last case in our office to preserve our clients' rights under the old statute. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch it play out because I know we're obviously not the only ones, just about every sophisticated attorney in the state of Florida is doing the exact same thing. Yeah, and that you know, leads to another question, probably another another day's uh, topic is, will this collapse the court system, which we don't think it will, but it's going to certainly put a semi-gridlock on uh, cases getting to trial. There's just so many lawsuits being filed. I mean, we've had different opinions, the two of us, just on how this is going to play out, but it's an unknown variable. Court system is not meant to you know, deal with this many lawsuits at one time, all being filed in a very short order. Well, exactly, because it's a one-time anomalous event. It's almost like seasonal. You can't, and you don't really, it's tough to staff up for seasonal work because it's a skilled position. You know, all the stuff doing things at the courthouse, it's not like you can just hire someone and say, hey, come in and process these. You know, there's a period of training and stuff like that. So I don't know how they're going to deal with this one-time influx. All right, yeah, it's been another episode of the David vs. Goliath podcast here with my partner, Matt Dolman. Uh, We appreciate you listening to us today. Sorry if you heard me rant a little bit about my dislike for insurance companies and the tort reform, but it just kind of naturally happens when stuff like this starts getting out there. Correct. Have a great day. This episode of David vs. Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N law.com or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.